0: Welcome to another episode of the Christian Reeve Podcast. If you like this here show, make sure you leave us a review on Podchaser. Or, alternatively, if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or elsewhere, please consider leaving a review and a rating. If you're checking out the Christian Reeve Podcast on YouTube, make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Also, If you want to support the show, why not check us out on Patreon.com slash Christian Reeve and get yourself exclusive bonus content and bonus podcast content. How about that? Okay, I've had my fun. But seriously, if you want to support the show, it really, really helps us out. So thank you so much and thanks again for listening hello and welcome to another episode of the christian reef podcast today's guest is an author a retired teacher and a podcaster his name is that dr randy overbeck welcome to the show how you doing i'm delighted to be here christopher so oh, sorry it's christian <laughs> um let's <laughs> so, uh no it's christian it's not christopher you get me confused with superman <laughs> <laughs> Does that,
1: does that happen a lot you?
0: yes painfully so but you, you, know the, you know the worst part about that um it's not even people get my name wrong it's more um they'll say oh are you related to Christopher Reeve and I'm like do you really think if I was that like don't you think you would have heard of me I'd be doing something like I would run with that I think most people would run with that if they have a famous relative run with that <laughs> do you know what I mean like like, uh, for instance, I just saw um, recently, I've been watching the US version of The Office, right? And uh, yeah. there's a, there's an actress in it called Rashida, Rashida Jones, quite well-known actress. Uh, she's the daughter of Quincy Jones. And I was like, oh, and you find that out later on. But like, sometimes, you know, these connections, sometimes not. It is what it is. But yeah, um, rest assured. So I'll have it here for the record. No, I'm not related to Christopher Reeve, Superman. <laughs> Wish I was. Maybe it would make things easier. We'll do no flying today. Then, in other words, okay. So, how did you get into writing? Let's walk back in the way machine. Where did it all start for you? Well, when I was a young man, a teenager, big
1: emerging adult, I had visions of being a um, lifelong writer. I was going to write the great American novel. Um, I really, really enjoyed writing as a young man. I'd taken creative writing courses in high school. I, this kind of was, too, but right around that time, um, the bug to serve children just kind of bit me, and and I was and I was drawn into education, and and was there for almost forty years. So, and I don't, I, that, that's not, I don't ever resent that. In fact, I loved doing that job. I loved working with kids. I loved working with teachers. But all throughout that time, I never really lost my desire to, to write. Um, fortunately, many of the jobs I took on required me to do lots and lots of writing, not what not what your listeners would, certainly not writing that people would pick up and buy, but it honed my skills, it honed my words, wordsmithing, it honed my vocabulary, all of those things. So even though I wasn't able to do storytelling, which is what I talk about on my podcast. I don't, but I was still doing writing most of that time. Um, the last 28 years, I ran school districts, So I was a assistant superintendent in four different districts. And most, 30% of my job was writing. So uh, everything from agendas to newsletters, to memos, to recommendations, just there was lots and lots of writing on. So that kind of kept the pipe pumped prime during
0: all that time must've been tricky to kind of keep it interesting. Cause I remember like when I was at university and I was studying a lot for some time reading, it would just became like a tool for me. And I just couldn't think of anything worse than reading. And I still use it as a tool for research to this day, but it's very difficult for me to sit. And I think this is more just my personality. I'm a fidget. I like to go out there and do things. That's just me. But, um, I don't know it kind of it kind of made me fall out of love with it a little bit and then obviously because you're using writing across your career for for work purposes how did you kind of stay I suppose interested in that what was the motivation when you finally started writing
1: well when I started writing what what we what we would call creative writing as opposed to technical writing um uh, I was, believe it or not, this it's kind of, it's a similar experience to what you described. I was actually right in the middle of writing my dissertation. So I, and for those that aren't familiar, the dissertation, you, you have to write, I don't know, it's a hundred plus page document with tons and tons of research all of all different kinds. And um, I was really, really frustrated because I, that's all I did was go to work, come home, Right. that My kids were a little older then, didn't take as much time. And that and I've just kind of got I'm tired of doing this technical writing. And I had this idea buzzing around in my head. So I just started. So, it, so so I would actually take a couple of hours out of my schedule and start writing what became my first story. Kind of. I mean, it sat in the drawer for years and years and years, but but at least it got me started.
0: You've kind of taken approach of, of using your real-life experiences and and kind of blending it is so can I ask is it is it kind of like a semi-novelization slash autobiographical or is it more just fully novel and you're just kind of using your experiences as like a base reference point Like, walk us through that a little
1: bit none of
0: what I've written
1: about in my five published novels have ever happened to me that's not none of those things have ever occurred but but, but yes, I did draw a great deal on my experiences in terms of knowing how schools work. and in every, every, almost every character I created is a composite of actual real people that I knew. So they might have had the voice of one person and the face of somebody else or or the way they re, way they acted was is, is it captured in that. But I'm, I'm hoping there isn't anybody that I work with that went, oh, that's me right there. I was going to say
0: that. Did anyone ever go, hang on a minute?
1: (laughs) Uh, Not yet. yet. But, but I mean, there are, it's close. I mean, so the answer to your question is, uh, none of them are true to life. None of them are novelizations, but all of those experiences. So the latest book is about kids experimenting with drugs. But Mm -hmm. what takes place in the story, it never took place. First of all, it's fiction and the drugs aren't real, but I've, Encountered several experiences of kids with kids who had who were in trouble because of experimentation and some who died because of experimentation. So I drew on those experiences to create something that was credible. I think in my fiction,
0: something that's really cool about um, your most recent book is that the pro- some of the prophets are going towards young youth. Um, Sort of drug prevention programs and as you mentioned like you're quite passionate about that you're trying to um educate on that that's quite clear with what you're saying is like that's amongst other things one of the purposes of of writing these books it's like educating form and obviously like ob- obviously uh, you want to tell stories and, and and entertain on that level but you know i suppose with all books and stories there's always like underlying lessons isn't there there's always a point that the author is trying to illustrate yeah.
1: For many, there are men, not everybody, but for many there are. And for me, I take that responsibility very seriously. So, if I'm going to have thousands of people read my stories because the stories are fun or they're they're good whodunits, or which is the reason why people are drawn to a book, I want them that experience to be such that when they walk away, they learn something about an area or an issue or a concept that they didn't know before. So uh, each of my books, each of the last four books uh, were very carefully, the, the, the murder mystery, the mystery part, was very cra- very carefully crafted around a real serious social issue. And this latest one is about um, uh, student drug experimentation. It's probably the best place. Student abu- drug abuse, but it's mainly about kids experimenting with drugs.
0: What's kind of your overall goal moving forward with your books because obviously you you spent this whole lifetime in 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 teaching and we'll get to that in a bit but I just want to kind of explore you as an author because I feel like in life like I'm an actor right and whenever I look at that in life I look at everything I've done in my life up until this point as being like a role we play different roles you mentioned you're a father that's a role that you play you're an author so walk us through your life as an author like how have you changed since doing this kind of full time
1: um i my head is always um working on the next story that's probably the biggest difference um but before in my in my first career uh, i i was i had a responsibility for lots of people lots of kids lots of uh, areas so I, my work life was pretty much taken up with this grant, uh, this evaluating this teacher, determining whether this programs how, how do we buy these books? All of those kinds of very people might consider them mundane things, but you know they were very critical and necessary things. So none of that, of course, is. I, I'm retired, so I don't have to deal with any of that. So Instead, my mind is my mind is always kind of busy, active. I get up half the night with another story. So I think, how has my life changed? I think that's probably the the single one, because what I learned is that t- t- people like a good story. They want a good story. Uh, the authors that I admire the most are not always great writers, um, but they tell really good stories. So people will almost always choose a good storyteller over somebody who's skillful with choosing his words um uh here's a, here's a good example uh one of my favorite authors early i was a big thriller reader early uh is and i still am um is robert ludlum i'm familiar with robert ludlum uh the born identity oh right yeah movies that came out of that were all part of his and he, he has some incredible uh, his stories are just captivating and just OK, well, somebody once told me, they said, now, take his book and read his dialogue. His dialogue is absolutely atrocious. People don't talk like that. He did not capture the way people talk. But when you are captivated in the story, you don't notice that. You know, you didn't notice the fact that the language were archaic or or, or um, difficult or, or uncomfortable or something. Because he's such a wonderful storyteller that he's got you wrapped around his wrapped around his finger. Because you're oh well, but what's happening next? Oh, so I've tried to, and I am not that I, my skill level is not anywhere near the other great storytellers. I, I'll admit that up front. So I'm usually kind of nursing my story. There's probably a better way to put it. So I'm working on, for example, I'm working on the newest, the fourth entry in the Haunted Joy Mysteries right now. And I'm nursing, kind of. How do I piece this together? What is it that I'm going? How can I get the next chapter where people are going? Wait, no, no, turn the page. Turn the page.
0: I mean, I think you've you've picked on like such a powerful point that I've never really considered, other than in in films. But like this idea that you can you can be a great storyteller and and be maybe bad with the wording. I mean, just look at Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> from what I hear <laughs> not very well written but an encapsulating story and also interesting about that is that being able to tap into something at a given time see with you writing about schools that's something that we can all you know relate, um, relate to hope. right yeah. and it there are certain things that will change over time but a lot of it stays the same um, for better or worse but it's the point is it's relatable, and with storytelling, I think a lot of the time when you're listening to someone tell a story, you're maybe doing one or two things. You're either trying to imagine yourself in that scenario, or you're trying to imagine the place that, like, however, the more detail that the author or, or the director or whatever gives, the better the picture of what's going on. And I think to your point about dialogue, it's it's it's, it's intriguing because when I think about the born identity, like the films. Even in the films, it's very silly, classic Hollywood kind of like, that's Bourne. That's 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 Jason Bourne. Like no one yeah, you're right, no one speaks like that. But then that's part of the fun, the drama, that's what draws us in. Same with like the James Bond movies, I guess. Um it's fun. It doesn't always have to be real.
1: And I really but a really great storyteller can take something that would appear not that fascinating, mm-hmm. and because how they are able to tell the interweaving the, uh, lives of the people of all the story. Now, think about Ken Follett's series, "The Pillars of the Earth." Have you read Ken Follett's series? Remar- oh, so Ken Follett, British author, um, was a is wasn't is a thriller writer, but he has become the quintessential historical writer in in the world. And he wrote a series of books, which are now at five, I think, I don't remember, about what we would consider to be one of the most boring things, the building of a medieval cathedral. You know, now somebody said, oh, well, I'm writing those, sorry about." You wouldn't go, oh, well, that sounds great. Let's read about that. But his storytelling is so good that you cannot wait to get to the next book. You know his characters are so real and what happens to them are is so convincing that you're going really that's incredible and that's that's what i that's what i think draws people to um fiction in general and to go back to what your question answers so what i i admit that i'm not a ken follett i can't just Man, imagine those things. So I have to nurture those kinds of storytelling in my head, thread by thread, piece by piece. Part of it is pants. Or do you know the? You know, you're a plotter or a pantser? So well, writers are generally one of two. cat. One is a plotter, somebody who actually sits down and writes an outline for the entire book. Here's what happened. Who's the bad guy is all that kind of stuff. Um, and then starts writing. A pantser doesn't do any of that. They just sit down at the computer and go, okay. Bam! I'm kind yeah, of happy. Stephen King, between.
0: basically. <laughs> yeah.
1: And both work. Depends on... You can name... You can find yourself your favorite fiction writer and you'll find one that's a plotter and you'll find one that... One of the paths you can create great uh, novels either way. But... um I feel for- like
0: a, with, a, with being a plotter, there's less likelihood of... For instance, creating plot holes and making mistakes. Like I remember one time hearing about the idea that you work your way backwards. So you obviously you plot it and you but you crucially like you you have your ending. OK, this yeah, is the ending. From,
1: yes, there are some mystery writers who say that's exactly what they do. They 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 start with the solution of the crime and then they work backwards backwards. Now, I don't do that. That's not my process. So my process is kind of a hybrid. So there are parts of my books that are always carefully planned and highly organized. And there are other parts that are just, I'll figure that out when I get there. So here's an example. So in Blood on the Chesapeake, which is the first in the series of the Haunted Shore Mysteries, there are four possible antagonists that is thrown that are thrown at the reader and the reader has to kind of figure out who the bad guy is. I did not decide which of those four was the murderer until I was through with 75% of the book. Interesting. Okay. Well, so I made sure that each one had, there were clues a possibility for each one that they could have done it all the way through the book. So I made sure there weren't any plot holes in that particular one. Because I wanted, I wanted, like the reader, I wanted to go, is it him? No, it's by him. Okay, well, what? So that's just kind of a technique that I've used, which, of course, is the opposite of I started with the bad guy and the murder and then h- how they did it, and then I worked backwards. Both processes work, but this kind of works better for me.
0: Are there any particular goals you're aiming to achieve as an author, like anything maybe like a particular accolade or maybe there's a you know, try to sell a certain number of books reach a certain audience or maybe it's just like I don't know some some other sort of personal goal related to being an author
1: well I think all of us who are serious authors would if we were if we were honest we would um we would admit that we we'd, I'd like to have a book on the New York Times bestseller list okay I've Got two of them that are bestsellers in Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and they've done well. and And I know that my books, I've sold my books, uh, I've sold more books than ninety percent of all all authors ever sell. I mean, already. So it isn't like I haven't had some success, but I've not had the elite success of being in that category of on on the New York Times or the U S. USA Today uh, bestseller list. Sure, I'd love to do that. Uh, my books have won. So far, eleven national awards, but they haven't. You know, I, I would I like to win the National Book Award? Oh yeah, I'd love to win the National Book Award. You know, um, I don't. I don't really spend my time worrying about that. That you asked, do I? Would I like? Yes, I would. But that really isn't why I write. <clears throat> that isn't. I'm not sitting here waiting for the phone to ring for them to tell me that it made the cut list or something you know um but would that would i be pleased with that yes without a doubt i'd love it
0: We heard it here first dr randy (laughs) overbeck for the new york times bestseller we've said it's in the universe now one thing i'm interested about is you know it'd be very easy to sit and ask you about like oh what does it feel like to have achieved success in that field and you know that might elicit an interesting response but what i'm more interested in and I think what my listeners are more interested in is, what did you learn about the process of writing these books? Like, what was the the key lessons, takeaways from the process of writing?
1: Um, well, I'll expand that to the process of writing and publishing both, because or getting published both. So um, uh, it's funny because I I know we did not plan this. But I actually, this is actually the topic of a blog that I'm dropping today or tomorrow. Hmm. Um, What have I learned in the last ten years? So, um, the first thing I would be perfectly honest with you when I tell I tell people this all the time. Uh, You know, I I I had a very challenging career. I mean, people don't know this, but if you have never faced a classroom full of unruly teenagers, that it that is a pretty tough uh, tough act. And then I followed that with, you know, having to manage, you know, millions of dollars and hundreds of staff, uh, all of which I did enjoy, but it was a tremendous challenge. I say that only because none of that was as hard as getting my first book written, ready, published, and marketed. I I was surprised at how very difficult the entire process was. Um, Now, I'm going to insult some people here but I'm going to do this anyway. Um there are there are some too many indie writers who get their books self-published. So sure. and the books the books have not been vetted, they haven't been edited, they haven't they literally write the book, put it on paper and send it out there, which they can do and that's fine. That's not that's not how I don't believe that's how writing works. I mean, you know, my my writing is—I I labor over the writing. I agonize over every paragraph, every chapter, every. Um, I get help. I get expert help from an editorial perspective that makes sure that all the Ts are crossed. Not only are the Ts and Is and the Is dotted, but also is it saying what it's supposed to say? So all of that process, I found to be very, very challenging. I like a challenge, so that doesn't put me off. But and then to find a venue for your writing, you know, is is a is a gut wrenching experience. Whether you whether whether that's a an agent or whether that's a small press, but it's other people looking at your work and going, "This is worth it." Okay, let's let's. Uh, and and I've had both success. I've had both successes and fail. Obviously, successes we wouldn't be talking here, but I've had more than more than my share of disappointments in that process as well. Then all that's done. I got a publisher. Great. The publisher is a wonderful publisher, Wild Rills Press, who's published my last four novels. Um, That's not even, there's more work. The most work that needs to be done is after all that happens. So the, the job to get your, get your book out in front of people is just, the work it takes to do that was what I was never prepared for. Right. You know, I've taught myself, I, I learned a lot of the processes and stuff, but not something. So that one lesson is don't, th- th- if you want to do it right, this is really hard, really challenging, really demanding. The second lesson is I wasn't prepared for how crowded the marketplace is. Um, in 22, okay, so my last book came out this year. I don't have the stats for this year. But in 22, there were 4 million new titles published. Which means on the day that my book dropped, which was October 17th, I think, um, there were 11, if you were an author, if you were a writer, a reader, just looking to find something, there were 11,000 new titles that appeared on Amazon that day. Boom. Mine was one of 11,000 or on Barnes and Noble or on Goodreads or whatever your source of books are. I mean, and try to, in, in this existing climate, to try to be able to have a reader find your book among that tsunami of books that are coming at them is just, uh, it, it is a, it is not a nightmare, but it is really, really challenging. You know, Um Those are two of the lessons that I took, that I've learned. So, you know, if I had to do over again, okay, the third lesson is this, um, the value of a, I didn't do this with the first novel, and I'm really sorry, but with the last four novels, I was a member of actually two different writing groups, writers groups, where where you took your work to them, where they critiqued your work and gave you feedback, And I will tell you that my writing is far better because of that experience. I mean, I'm an English teacher. So I'm, as far as the cross the T's and dot the I's, I do that pretty well. But when I would submit them, they would find things I would never see. And they would come up with ideas I would never have thought of. It's just amazing. So... What I tell this is one of my recommendations to new writers. First of all, go find a writers group. Go find a group that will be honest, that will be supportive, but it will also be will not be afraid to critique your work and tell you, "This is good. This this part I don't get." And here's what you're missing. You could have done this in this particular part. So, that's just a few of the things that I have learned over the last
0: couple of years. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. There. I mean. Certainly, I agree with you immensely when it comes to the quality assurance side of things. Um, but I see it a lot in the video game industry. For example, um, there was a video game that came out last year, PlayStation 5. So it's a big deal. You're paying like 50, 60 bucks for this or uh, 50 pounds, 60 pounds. <laughs> and there's spelling mistakes everywhere. And this is, I won't say the title, but this is a major title, major property. It's tied to films and TV series and stuff. Okay. So you don't expect there to be mistakes. And the problem is with these major developers, they will employ third-party developers, indie developers to produce sure. their game, right? And they're, they have, they're pressured to meet deadlines, they're pressured to get it out, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is they overlook stuff like that Mm -hmm. and it's so important to not overlook those things like you said go to writers groups get a second opinion third opinion fourth opinion you know it's it's so important I I think that it's it's good you know I've self-published little things here and there but like I I must have looked over my work at least a hundred times before I even considered about like, like publishing it and even then that that was something small it was just like some poetry stuff for an entire novel I mean there's also like the marketability of things like I'm a big believer in not allowing people to affect like the 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 overall story of things but even authors like Stephen King for example we mentioned earlier like he has had I think it's mentioned in the maybe the prologue or, or the beginning section of The Stand, which is a massive, huge book. If you've ever seen it, it's like this big. Um, there was a bunch that the publisher said, like, you should cut all of this out. And telling an author to cut stuff out of their story, I mean, that's that's a ballsy move. But, like, it's important because their job is literally to publish books. That's what they That's what they do. And they do it very successfully. And they're giving this advice based on that because they know that if it's not done there's less of a chance of it being successful. And it's, it's it comes down to that. But then sometimes I, I think the the other side is true. Sometimes you do have to stand your ground a little bit. Um, it's finding the happy medium, really, isn't it? And I think over time, the more confidence you get in what you're doing, the more you work in it, you find your own individual process, the easier it's going to get.
1: Well, and I want to make sure that I don't get in trouble here with your viewers I, I have indie published friends uh, that are, are really good authors you know I, uh, the the book the martian comes to mind you know that book the martian but well, that was originally indie published and then after, and it was picked up by a publisher later i mean so there is lots there are lots of quality work being done by indie writers uh, the problem is that they they're all they're overcrowded by a lot of people who are not taking the time. Um, another statistic that you, your viewers would be interested in. So I told you how many, uh, you know, there are, I think the last count, last count that we were at 6 million uh, uh, books on Kindle, I think. Yeah. Uh, take a guess, on average, on average, how many copies of a single title are sold on on Kindle?
0: Oh gosh. Uh out of 6 million uh, so somewhere like 50 to 70,000 maybe on average. So this uh, of
1: an individual title I've seen two reports one is 6 and the other is 12. Oh. So that oh, means man. that means that there are millions out that uh, sold three copies, one to the author, one to his author's mother, and one to the author's girlfriend. I mean, that that's oh. the reality. So, again, but if you are looking for my book and you happen upon this array of books that are listed, you, you don't know which books are were just thrown up and which ones, you know, you, you can't tell that unless you get in and start looking at pages and stuff like that. And, that, and that's part of what makes the market so difficult.
0: I'll say this, though. Like, there's always going to be competition. And yes. there always has been, there always will be. <laughs> hey, look, I do a podcast, and I've been doing this for four years. This is episode 256. There are estimated to be, last time I checked, I think this was the data for Spotify, not including other platforms, around 4 million active podcasts. Oh, sorry 4 million podcasts of which are active around 3.2 million something to that effect wow. now it's even harder for a podcast like mine which is very broad I have guests from all around the world different disciplines different industries different topics you name it there's no the, the biggest thing that kind of draws it all together the thread between all things is that I pride myself on being a good interviewer that's what I'm trying to push Human interest stories, deep dives, topics, and me, the interviewer. That's why my name's on the show. But look, I'm under no illusion. I know it's odds oh, are stacked against me. I knew it from day one and I still know it 256 episodes later. But I believe in what I'm doing. And I think that if you believe in what you're doing and you keep going, you keep pushing, you're gonna get better over time. Everybody that's right. watching this show now, go and check what the first episodes of my show were like and then come back and look at a new episode now you'll see a massive difference a difference in confidence a difference in my approach a difference in the style show format you know and I'm sure it's the same is true of of books like you look at your book that you've currently published and then your first book and you look at it and you're like wow like we've with it's like night and day (laughs) i think that like and another aspect to this as well is is especially in the book industry it's all about buzz you know um uh, with books a lot of the time it's still word of mouth which is is really interesting but that's kind of how it works a buzz kind of happens maybe someone recommends it maybe it becomes a useful tool or i don't know true crime for instance is really popular and people always get kind of excited like you have to hear this novel you have to watch this documentary etc etc so there's that kind of buzz that's created sometimes but then sometimes it's like just being in the right place at the right time or the right person seeing it or whatever and I guess because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is about how you dealt with kind of the dark the the difficult times the rejection stuff like that but before I asked that I, I just wanted to say on top of that that you know you have to keep going in spite of that you can't be perturbed by how the odds are stacked against you or the fact that it's difficult or that you know the chances are you'll never make it well if you don't try at all you definitely won't make it so there we go
1: i, I agree 100 percent, and and that i think part of that how you respond to that challenge is what defines you
0: damn you know? yeah okay and
1: I would say that my experience as an educator helped prepare me for that because, you know, you're never going to do well enough with kids. You're always – my role was we're going to pretend like we're not going to lose any kid, but we'll lose some. Some will f- fall through the cracks. Some we won't be able to reach, the that kind of stuff. But you are going at the job as if, nope, I'm saving every kid no matter what. So because of that, that, I think that kind of primed me some – at least to to deal with adversity, to deal with the obstacles, to to keep going. Just, okay, that didn't work. Let's try something else. That's kind of how it works in education when you're working with kids. Okay, that they weren't able to learn that way. Let's try this way, see if they can figure out how to do the math using this process. So, you know, I think that those skills that I honed uh, earlier helped prepare me for for this and, and I have had more than already more than my share of uh setbacks and difficulties and disappointments.
0: Well, and I'm see, sure there are more. Let's speak to that for a second because I, I desperately want to talk about teaching. I know everyone here wants me to ask the questions, I will, but final thing on the authorship side of things.
1: Oh, well, uh, I think, um, this is probably the this this will crystallize. This is just an example, but this will crystallize it. So, uh, with first book in the in the series, the haunted shore mysteries, which have done very well, um, I tried to get an agent because I wanted to. I wanted it to be land with a major publisher because it has better chances when it does that. And I pitched it to agents, and I had oh uh, somewhere around ten agents who were interested enough and asked for partial or full manuscripts, which that's a big step. But in the end, they said things like, I didn't like the ghost part, or I don't know who I'm going to market this with, or, you know. But in the bottom line was, in the end, none of the agents ended up picking, representing me, picking the book up. So... And that was after I went through a hundred agents, 100 agents. So I kind of took a deep breath and went, okay, let's see what small presses think about this. And I did my research and tried to match with the kind of stuff that the small press puts out because they're all different. And I sent to three of those small presses and two of them offered contracts. Now that whole process probably took a year. I don't. I didn't record it, but it probably took a year, because I, in the, uh, the the agents, I was sending them out in batches of ten. So I would select ten agents, send query letters out, get get response, and then that didn't work. Send another ten, and send another ten, send another ten. <laughs> Some of them I was fortunate enough to meet through a writing conference. Others were cold calls, but. But eventually, uh, and I <clears throat> I was offered two contracts and accepted the one with Wild Rose Press, and I've been super happy with that particular publisher out of New York, and they do a fine quality job. <clears throat> the, the product is exceptionally well. They do wonderful covers. And the the difference is between them is that they don't, they don't market it the way a major publisher does. And I'm sure if you've had authors on here, you know this, but <clears throat> excuse me. Um, if you're not with a major publisher and with some university presses, everything else is po published POD, which is published on demand. Um, that system works really well. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, before the pandemic, and I think they're getting close to that again, you could order you could order a POD book today. It doesn't even exist. It will print, ship, and be at your door in three days. That's- that's how so but pod uh publishers carry no inventory. So they don't they don't do any inventory at all. So MI publisher is, is one of those. Well, one of the setbacks of that is that major bookstores don't carry POD books, period. Mm. They will, on rare occasion, carry a local guy's book that they happen to know for a while. And I've had some of the chains carry that indies some independent bookstores carry mine, but the but the chains don't. So that's one of the. So nobody's going to walk into a bookstore and discover your book because it's not there. You know that's another whole. We can do a whole podcast on the really screwy setup that publishing book publishing has. But so to all of those were you know really difficult decisions. Do I keep trying to put this out, hope that I'll find some agent who then finds some publisher that then finds <clears throat> finds a, an outlet that's going to be able to give me more traction, more marketing, more background, more everything then? Or do I go ahead because I it's important for me that I think this book is worth it. Do I go with a small press and I decide to go with a small press? I've become one of the small press's best sellers, you know. I, so
0: everything has gone well. But it's more work on my shoulders when I go that way. So the motivation amongst receiving those rejections and sort of going through that was you believed in that you knew that these were good. This was a good story. These were good stories and that they were worth publishing. That was the motivation. Yeah. And and I will be honest. I get
1: the feedback I got was often positive in the sense that they like my writing or they like this character or whatever. They just weren't really. Uh, I love this. Agents go. I'm just not really in love with this. I don't want to represent a book that I don't feel passionate about. Okay. Which I get and I understand. If you you should have an agent on your show to have them talk about that.
0: Um, Interesting. maybe we will get one thank you so much for sharing i really appreciate it um being a teacher is is a huge part of of your life and um obviously you're retired now we mentioned that and i just want to go back to what you said before because i find this amazing and the audience will learn why i think it's incredible because i've already done my research on you so i know about this but my audience doesn't know you said it was much harder (laughs) trying to get your book published than it was going through some of the experiences you had as a teacher now you've had some how can i put this some experiences that no teacher should ever have to go through um some some some, quite frankly like terrifying experiences and you came out the other side and i'm fascinated to explore some of these Um, I think the only way I can really do this is to just kind of jump into them I want to kind of cover your ethos as as a teacher in a little bit because we've touched on it a bit in the beginning and I'd like to explore that a bit bit later but let's get into some of the big stuff first Um, you once had to intervene in like during school shootings and we see this a lot in in the United States unfortunately this is something that's that's always been happening and it's It's terrifying, but one thing that we don't always hear about is what it's like for people involved in that situation. You know, like staff, you have a a duty of care. You've got to protect students, but there's only so much you can do in a situation like that. You know, until the authorities come in, you know, you've got to do your best to try, especially if it's a student, try to kind of communicate with them on some level. And you once successfully managed to not only communicate with the person, but you apprehended the person that had the gun. If you're well, willing, uh, I'd love to sort of just walk through this experience. Uh, the, I, well, I,
1: I, I wanna make sure that I'm being honest about this. First of all, uh, in, in the, there are two cases that actually occurred in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in both cases, I'm not a teacher, I'm an administrator. Okay? okay. And in both cases, it was not me. It was, I was part of a team of administrators who were dealing, finding out about the possible threat, dealing with the threat, and then and then diffusing the threat. So I, I don't want to hang any halos on me. It's not so. But to your point, I, I was very much in the middle of what the issues were. And I'm first of all, let me start off by saying uh, it never made the news because in both cases there weren't any uh, casualties. There wasn't any. There weren't any problems. Uh, that we were able, we were able to fuse it, but that doesn't make that doesn't mean that the situation wasn't scary enough to begin with. So in both cases, um, uh, I think one was junior high, and one was high school. I think in um, both cases, a student had brought a gun to the school or tried to or whatever, um, uh, and almost always the students that are involved uh, have some kind of grudge, which or they're feel they're being picked on, or which they probably are. So that's that's another whole series of questions. Um, And we were very fortunate because what happens almost nearly all the time, obviously not all the time because of the horrible tragedies we see, is that those kids tell somebody else, another peer. Well, those peers got word to a teacher first, and the teacher quickly alerted us. In the first case, we found the gun in the um, in his locker, I think. And in the second case, we found the gun, a rifle in this case, in the trunk of a car. So in Ohio, in the US, um the parking lot belongs to the school. So if you park your car on school parking lot, you don't have privacy to what's in the car. So we were able to go out and find out, and, you know. Now, you know, we have lots of kids that are hunters, so having a rifle is not really that terribly unusual. They're not really allowed to do that. But we had found that we had heard that the kid had some uh, uh, evil plans to do something with that. So, and so we had, but in both cases, uh, it was not me physically that went, and oh, here's the gun. I was part of a team that isolated the student. Somebody else went to the, they went went to the locker. Somebody else called the police. All of these things are happening at the same time. I was just part of the team.
0: But you had to speak to the students in question, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. And it, 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 in my role as administrator, um, I didn't usually. <laughs> most of the time, when I interacted with kids, there were serious problems involved.
0: This is Whether what they fascinated by. by lights or drugs or uh
1: and yes you know uh now in the in the case in the two cases you're talking about i don't think i had much of an extended conversations because the cops took them before we got very far is what i recall um now you know no nobody got hurt no that's good uh, <laughs> that's that's great days oh, yeah worked for how it was supposed to work but Um did I go home? You know, yeah, breathing a sigh of relief when I went home each of those two times. There's no question about it, because it could have been a whole lot worse. Now, my you know, my fear was not for me, because where where the administration was located is was in a completely different place than where these things were taking place. It was for the teachers and the kids, uh, terrified of what could have happened had we not got there as soon as we did or not gotten the the report from a student. If they, you know, if student had been courageous enough to say, Hey, I you know, think because well, the problem is that, you know, kids talk all the time and uh, mm-hmm. you don't have this problem in England probably, but man, here kids talk about guns all the time. You know, that's a big deal. So to know when it's not just, and when, Oh, this is something, this is something we better pay attention to. This is, this is a, this is a critical issue that we'd better address right here and now. That's kind of, that's part of what your skill
0: is as an administrator to know that. Do you think there's anything, like, given that it's happening a lot in the US and it has been for some time? Since so 19... 19- right. Do you think there's like, something glaringly obvious that's being missed out as far as, like, how, let's say, schools and and the states can kind of approach a situation like that. Because there's only so much you can do, obviously, like, you know, gun laws are what they are. And that's a whole other conversation, so we won't get into that. But, like, they are what they are, okay? And there are different instances. So, for instance, like, in one instance, it could just be someone's done something really silly. They brought in this thing when they shouldn't right oh, versus we had a
1: way to bring a gun in one time by example right
0: Tell right and and then and then other times it's like more nefarious like that example you gave where someone has clearly defined plans and it's terrifying and we've seen that be carried out over time we've seen that in, in more recent times as well and I, it's kind of fascinating for me as, as someone from a different country to look at this because culturally it's it's very different like we we've had things like knife crime in the UK i grew up in london and we had a lot of knife crime there and the way that that was mitigated was we would have like metal detectors outside the front gates of school and stuff and that would to an extent make a difference but then you couldn't control what went on beyond the gates right. um in a situation like a school shooting i, I don't know what you can do besides having like in like police enforcement at the at every gate or something i don't know is there anything you could speak to on that front
1: well, i don't know i've been out for a decade so uh, and things have gotten rapidly worse mm. in that period at least worse in the sense of uh amount or number of um some schools ours did not some schools have gone to Metal detectors to try to make sure that things can't get through the gate. Although, but you're right. In those cases, the the whatever problem existed was going to happen on the street outside, as opposed to the school. But you know, when you're when you're a school administrator, you 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 live with the limitations that you have. So um, we yes we we would police things like bus stops and things like that. But realistically, there's only so much you can do. You know, um, our problem, our meaning, not schools, but the U.S. problem, is really a problem of culture. So the kids are simply evidencing the culture that they're experiencing outside of school. Mm-hmm. We have a much too casual relationship with guns. You know, I, there's just no, and we've had a terrible problem of thinking of that's how you, with certain populations of thinking that's how you solve your problem. You know, you're mad at somebody, you take a gun. And unfortunately, you know, it's a U.S. thing. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. My opinion is it's a perverted version of what we call our second amendment. Uh, amendment. So, um, but I, I don't know how, if if I were, somebody says, we're gonna make you young again and you're going back and be an administrator today in schools I don't honestly know besides the things like we do have well officers uh, we call them resource officers
0: okay
1: in the schools uh, primarily to kind of create a positive relationship with the police or not the the resource officer is the one that we called in the situation I was telling you about okay he's the first man on the scene but' or woman <clears throat> but they're not. They can't possibly be everywhere at once um we could do metal detectors but then kids start feeling like they're in a prison so you're kind of you know we do all of our buildings all of our new buildings have been built in such a way so that you can only enter in one place
0: okay so yeah
1: you have, to, you have to be let in that's not true early in the morning but generally throughout the day that's the case that certainly is
0: raises the level of safety to a certain degree. Um, I've noticed as well, like architecturally speaking, a lot of uh, U.S. schools have quite similar look to like, you know, colleges, as you call them, um, as in they're all flat level, single level, uh, open plan. Um, so they're quite easy to traverse in that sense, whereas, you know, it's different from say like having schools with like multi-level stories and stuff and like big buildings and whatnot. So that's, that's, I would imagine that's a big factor in that too. Then maybe that's been done on purpose to, to mitigate that. I I couldn't really speak to that, but it's always just, it's just kind of, I mean, there's not really much to say other than obviously it's terrible and hopefully we can come to some sort of uh, solution to that problem one day um one thing that you said before before that was that you had kind of like a history of talking to, to like troubled kids kids with that were dealing with a lot of things and from the way that you said that it kind of sounded like you you're quite confident in doing that i'd just love to kind of hear about your approach to 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 dealing with that like how you spoke to those kids and kind of got through to them and helped them
1: oh when i when when i would end up talking with a the kid they're usually in one of two situations they're either um in our system, uh, we have a tiered system of discipline that starts with anything from mild reprimands to set to the office, to eventually you get to uh, what's called in-school suspension, mm-hmm. which means we're going to take you out. You know, you don't get to do the fun things. You don't get to go to lunch. You don't get. To, you're in one room and you're having. To, and then if it's if the transgression is worse, it becomes out-of-school suspension, and if the transgression is even worse than that, it becomes expulsion. Mm-hmm. So re- the reason I'm explaining that is the kids that I would talk to were at the very end of that discipline ladder. Uh, they I, Usually I would end up talking with them if they were up for long-term suspension. So if you're long-term suspension, you're out for 10 days, up to 10 days, could be up to 10 days. Um, or if you're expulsion, you're... You're never allowed back in again. So that meant that they had to do something pretty serious to get that point. And and I they would in most cases I would be having the conversation if somebody, usually a parent, wanted to argue that kid didn't deserve such a thing, or don't do that to my kid's gonna ruin his life. You know, those kind of things. Um and yes, I mean, when you when you're a high school teacher, you, 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 which is how I started my career, um, from the very get go, you uh, end up talking to kids in difficult situations, not the kind we're talking about here, where they're getting ready to get thrown out of school, but uh, difficult situations at home, difficult situations with their peers, with their girlfriend. Uh, so, I mean, it just kind of came natural to me as an educator that you you. To work with kids when they're in need. And and you're open enough. I, you know, one of the rules I had as an educator was kids don't care how much they know until they know how much you care. So I tried to make sure that that was kind of evident from when I very began. Um, as an example, here's an example. When I was a teacher, one of my rules was, I my teacher, I normally I'd have a class of 25, 30 kids, okay? One of my rules was I would talk to every kid within 40 minutes. Somebody, every kid in the class, would get a question or a comment, or I'd ask something about him. So every kid knew that I cared that he was in that classroom that day. That was one of my rules. I didn't always succeed, but that's what I had tried to do every time. Anyway, so by the time it got to this particular point, um, I can recall, I can share with you one one that I really remember. So there is, for, I don't know if your listeners know this or care, but the worst fights were always between girls. That um, girl fights are more severe, more ugly. More, you know, um,
0: what more. What do you think in,
1: that is? Emotionally charged. I, I don't know. I Just you know. I um, again, guys have fights and they're over with and everything's done. Where girls do this and it might go on for weeks. And you know, I, uh, I, I had a a pair of girls, high school girls. I don't even remember what they were arguing about, but the girl. The first girl had taken. They were outside in the parking lot, I think, and they had. She had taken this other girl's head and slammed their head on the, the hood ornament. You know, Jesus, and, and stitches and you know, blood and everything else. And and I was dealing with the, the guy who done this. We we're having a conversation, and I'm I, I said, okay, tell me what happened. And, oh, she dished me. Whatever language they used, and you know, and I was mad, and then they t- she took my boyfriend. I, I I don't remember those kind of particulars, and 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 she said, I said, but why did you do that? She said, I don't know. I needed to show her something like that. What I learned, and and we talked more, and what I ended up finding out was she'd been a victim of abuse at home, so she thought that was you know, how do you make your point? Well, I'll show them. And I've, you know, and it took, she ended up in counseling. We didn't expel her and stuff. Um, And I don't remember, we didn't have another, I didn't have another. She never showed up in my door again, which means she never got to that level. But, you know, most of the time, the conversations would go like that. They would go, you know, tell me about it. Well, why would you do this? Where would you ever think that's okay to, you know, you know, uh, it it was hard most of the time when you see those kinds of issues y- you would find out that they had learned it from home and when you met the parents you would understand I think that mother was just furious with me that I would that you know it wasn't her daughter's fault that she was she, uh, the girl put her up to it or the girl insulted her or the girl you know And I remember having a long conversation with the mother. That's not how you solve. There are 10 other things. And I I ended up asking the girl, are there other things you could have done? Are there other ways you could have solved this argument other than put this girl in a hospital? Well, she'll never do that to me again. "Mm, That's not really my point. I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, but that's kind kind of, that's how the conversations would often go.
0: I would imagine that you often dealt with situations in class where you're just dealing with people being disruptive, people causing problems deliberately, and they you have you seem to have like quite a calm demeanor about you, and I find that interesting like is there any particular steps you you would take in order to get control of the class like what what would be your advice as far as as you know kind of keeping control of 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 a class and and preventing them from being disruptive
1: well i i my first advice when i when i was working with young teachers my first advice was you know you you spend as much time as you have to to make sure your lesson is as good as possible because it is true that some kids will act out regardless of the lesson but The majority of kids respond directly in proportion to how poor the lesson is. So, you know, I had, and it really doesn't make any difference about the subject. I had every subject you could think of. I had teachers that had a way to make that stuff magic, you know, interesting, fascinating, perplexing, compelling. So that first rule is work on, do the work in advance where you're doing the planning, so that, however, this lesson that you're trying to teach about math integers has a way that will hook kids that really couldn't care less about math integers. You know, find a real world application. Find something that they could pull from that they would have some idea. So, so that's the first start. Regardless of how good your lesson is, there will always be some kids that will act out, ignore, uh, sleep, uh, whatever. So that's a constant thing that any teacher that's teaching in almost any place has to deal with. So one of the things you make sure is that the lesson is interactive enough so that they're not sitting ducks. This is not, I'm not lecturing at you and you're just supposed to be listening and taking notes. I just, I mean, yeah, that's, there's, there's a place for that, but that's not really what you're doing on a regular basis. So you figure out how to do that. Uh, the other thing is, this thing called management by walking around. So, Uh, good teachers are never at the front of the class only. You know, good teachers constantly roam the class. One of the things I would do if I would know that this young man was likely to be not only off task, but getting others off task, is I would make sure that I'm teaching part of the lesson standing next to him or behind him or in front of him. It doesn't really make any difference, but that he would know that I'm there to pull him in uh, keep him from straying. Um, there are other strategies I'd come up with as a teacher. I had come up with ways to find out how to how, let kids work together and have very specific tasks that they'd have to do because the kids much rather work with them than they would with me as an adult. So, you know, th- those things all combine together to get most of the kids, not all, never all, but most of the kids on your side, engaged, learning what you want them to learn.
0: When I was at university, I remember that the lessons were 50 minutes long.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So just under an hour. And I remember hearing a statistic that said, the human, average human retention rate is about 20 minutes. So, you know, even if, right, even if the lesson is outstanding, you've only really got that audience for 20 minutes. Can you speak to that? Do you think there's a better way that like an well, optimal amount of time for lessons to be, something like that?
1: I mean, clearly when you by the time you get to university, you you would expect that kids can manage longer than average. But
0: you would expect that? Way. I don't but, think you could assume that. <laughs> but the point is still the same.
1: The point is that what I told my teachers is you, you shouldn't have any part of your lesson that goes longer than 20 minutes. So um, we would have... In the schools that I work with, it was about the same time frame. Some of them were as short as 40, some of them were as long as two hours. We'll, we'll talk to that differently. That's when they were if they were double blocked. But we would talk about the fact that when you design your lesson, you 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 need to have it in about 15 or 20 minute chunks of what you're going to do. So going back to what just going on what you're saying, which is okay. So let's assume that I had a 50-minute slot to, that I was teaching math. I'm not a math teacher. I was an English teacher, but I knew how all of, all of them went. I, I would design the lessons. This is what would happen. So this is what we had. And, and again, all of these things are ideas. I got from the best teachers I work with. They would have the kids immediately come in, and the kids knew ahead of time that they were going to work in groups. And he had set up groups of three. He had a problem on the board. And he had some kind of reward for whoever got figured out the problem first. So the kids would be jumping in, going, oh, you know. And the rewards are silly, candy, you know, something but but high school kids that they'd go for, you know. So that would take the first ten or fifteen minutes. Then he would do the lesson, whatever he was gonna have them do, and that would take another fifteen minutes, and then he would send them on doing some independent work and then he'd finish up with them going back in their group to compare independent work. So he, this guy, this particular teacher broke things up really well. So he had, not surprisingly, almost no discipline problems. Every once in a great while, some kid would end up getting kicked out of class for some ridiculous, usually very serious disrespectful stuff. But other than that, there weren't any real discipline problems. And I had a lot of teachers who were able to figure out how to do that. As a writing teacher, I would usually do You know, the kids would do some writing part of the time, we would do some reading part of the time, and then we would have some kind of common project where they're critiquing each other. So you can look at every subject and do that. I had a history teacher that was just fantastic, you know, and kids hate history as a general rule. It's the least favorite subject in American schools, because in my opinion, it's the worst taught. But, But I had history teachers that kids love going to history class. They love learning about stuff. So... Um, I, all of those things. The other oh, there's one other thing. So one of the things you do as a skill teacher is you figure out uh, where what kids are likely to create problems together, and they're never sitting. Now, my wife was an art teacher for 23 years and, and a great one, and she had a different approach which worked really well. She let kids sit wherever they want, um, but she said, "If you screw up, you're going to get moved." So understand. I said, and it worked 90% of the time for her, just, just really well.
0: Have you at any point in your career been an exam invigilator?
1: I don't understand.
0: I'm an exam. Oh, uh, an invigilator. Maybe it's a different word in the, uh, in the word US. In the so, okay, during an exam, in an exam hall, one of the people responsible for giving people papers, checking in on students, making sure they're following the rules during an exam, something like that. We call them in the UK an invigilator. Um, okay. The, okay, did you ever do not, that? Not yet, yeah. I
1: mean, we have in the US, I just talked to, i speak to Ohio, because in Ohio we have um, both national tests and state tests that are given under very specific restrictions. But I, but those tests were not started until I was out of the classroom okay. and the administrative role. But to your question, the answer is yes.
0: I would help out in some schools with some of those responsibilities. You know. Okay, I'm intrigued to see if it's anything like it is in the UK. Because here, um, it's a bit of a meme, it's a bit of a joke. Because, uh, don't get me wrong, they, you need those people. It's important role, it's an important task. Um, for instance, here in the UK, sometimes you could get them to like read out questions for you, like really quietly. And sometimes that helps students like refocus or whatever, just hearing someone else say it, stuff like that. And obviously like they would help you with any concerns you might have and stuff. So it was useful. But it was also very distracting. Cause you'd have a room full of say 50 people uh, and there was a lot of arguments about the fact that it would have been better to have had these exams in classrooms familiar environments instead of where we would have them like the the hall that we played basketball in or uh, some other cold empty hall with uncomfortable uh, built for purpose exam you, you know where i'm going with this exam seating um but the the probably the most distracting thing of all was the fact that the invigilators would walk up and down constantly around the room now see you mentioned earlier like when you're teaching in a, in a classroom it's not as distracting if anything i think it's kind of a useful tactic in some ways to, to, let's say like there's a maths test or you're just checking in on students. It's If you've got the teacher walking around, there's a little bit of pressure on you to be not mucking around. I think it's, you know, it's a useful psychological tactic. But in an example, that's so distracting. And I struggled as enough as it is with exams. So having someone leering or several people leering around and it was really just intense and distracting I just wondered could you speak to that is it any different in the US it
1: is I don't I'm trying I'm listening to your um uh recounting of your experience and trying to see if there's anything that's remotely close now I we do we, as I said we do have um national and state tests but all of those were always given uh, in classroom settings or smaller than classroom settings. So <clears throat> what you just described would never happen. So we were, we weren't allowed to read anything. However, there were kids, there were students with disabilities mm-hmm. that need that help. They're in a different room. Yeah. So there's a little small room with six kids or eight kids or something, as opposed to the classroom of twenty five. Um, and things were, you weren't even allowed to go to the restroom. So I mean, you know there were and. The Wait, what? Were, like, <laughs> during the time of the test. So the test was 50 minutes or something. You know, oh, like okay. I
0: was say.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, there were different tests. The testing was five hours or three hours, but yeah. it was 40 plus of 50 minutes. So during that time, everybody's staying, you know, you couldn't, uh, What did, we ended up developing a system that could have a, a novel or a pleasure book when they were done, they closed the test and they could read, they could read quietly, or they could sleep if they if that's what they wanted. Um, Do we have people walking up and down? I think there was there was a little bit of checking, but most of the time, they, that's the, the the room's not that big, and the teacher could make sure that you know that kids still had questions. You know, can you tell me what this word means? And the teacher would go, "No, I'm sorry, I can't figure." It you can i mean that that's kind of that's a, i guess that's the even, now i did not do this but i had several teachers that do we have a college entrance exam yeah even those are taken in they don't they're not taken in auditorium style arrangements those are taken in classrooms because i've coordinated like meaning i've hired teachers who are paid by the test company to come on a Saturday morning and do that. So I knew I had to have five teachers because we had five classrooms or whatever. So I knew they weren't taking them in large groups. So I don't think we have, I don't think, I don't think there's much experience that we have in the U S that's comparable to what you're describing.
0: I think the biggest problem I always had with those other than the setting and and just generally the way it was, was, (laughs) and I know everyone listening from the UK will know exactly what I mean. Let's say the, uh, the exam is two hours long and I finish in record time, 45 minutes, an hour. Maybe I've just smashed it. Maybe I've, you know, sped through it and I need to recheck the test. That would be the first thing they would say. They'd be like, well, make sure you go over and, and you know, check your answers. So I would do that. Okay, I've done that. And then I'd say, hey, I'm done. They're like, great, check again. So I check again. I'm like, I'm pretty sure now this is technically the third time I've gone through this. It's done. Can I leave? No, you need to wait here for another 45 minutes until everyone else is finished. Now that was the biggest frustration for me and everyone else involved. Cause it was like, why, what are we doing? You know, you mentioned there that like people would at least be able to read a book, go to sleep, do any of the above, not just sit in silence in this nerve wracking, horrible scenario. And just wait. Well,
1: and and I I need to kind of amend my answer because in the beginning, our kids had to sit in silence too, and we had we had the same problem. Now they didn't have to sit in silence for the times that you had because our tests were not three hours long. Our tests were, I mean, there were the tests were three hours long, but you did test A for forty five minutes, you did test B for fifty minutes, you did test C for. 45. So you would do each one. of them separate. And then there would be a change, you know, go, go to the bathroom or
0: between. Well, I mean, or I'll, anyway. I'll, I'll say this. I'll, I'll add, cause we never, we never had anything three hours unless it was like, I remember, I remember there was some art exams where you'd be painting for like five hours, but I think the rules were a bit different on that. Cause obviously you'd need to like eat and, and do other things. I think it was a little bit different with that, but from what I remember, typically it would be like say 45 minutes, an hour something like that um I think an hour and a half might have been the longest possibly but what I recall is that like especially during an English exam I I was always better at English and I remembered being finished earlier because I just I wrote quicker and stuff and I just remember looking at that and going okay well I've got 30 minutes to go like I just have to sit here for half an hour and but yeah and we all had to, and we'd all just kind of end up like staring, and looking at each other, and then of course we get told off. Like, "Are you cheating?" "No, I'm bored. I'm just sitting." "Like, what do you want me to do?" Like, and I remember, sorry, to go off a bit for the tangent here, but they had uh, <laughs> us do the same thing in detention when I was in detention. I remember, I never forget this as long as I live. Um, first time, one of the first times I ever had detention. I was, I don't know, eleven, twelve years old. I'm sitting there, cold miserable hall and my mind immediately thinks oh well i'll just do some homework right great idea but then the teacher had to just come over and she she looked happy she was you know she saw what i was doing she saw i was trying to be productive she's like i'm really sorry but we're not allowed to let you do that you need to sit and stare at the clock and think about what you've done (laughs) and and the reality was for me was always frustrating like my problem at school was that i was rude I wasn't a bad student. I was I was clever. I need what I needed was for people to recognize, hey, this kid needs some self-esteem. Give him some self-esteem, make him believe in himself, then you won't get any rudeness. Um, but that, you know, some teachers got that, other teachers didn't. Um, oh. but yeah, that was frustrating. And then I think they caught on to that years later, because I remember a point where up until a certain age, you still had to sit in a I think they moved it to like a cafeteria, but you just had to sit. And I think sometimes you're allowed to do, to do homework, sometimes not. But when you got to the age, so so for us, we do it a bit differently, but like towards the end of high school, 15, 16, we do the GCSE. So, right. so it's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit weird, actually. I think your way makes more sense because you have continuous education until 18, but you right. split it up three ways. It's... Uh, Like early school and then middle school and then high school. Whereas we do high school, well, we do primary school, high school, and then we have college for two years or a year, depending on if you take a vocation.
1: It starts at what age?
0: College starts at 16? Y- yeah, but college is not university. College is right. two okay. years. Yeah. Again, I mean, it makes no sense. I think they're trying to change it so that it'll be to 18. I think that would be more sensible. Um, But it it is what it is. But anyway, um, if you were at that latter end of your high school education, they would let you go to like a computer room and work on things or something. I can tell you why they
1: don't let you leave in the middle of the test. So the problem is that what they found is that if you, okay, there's a test and you're supposed to take 50 minutes and the kid's, the test has been designed so that you might need 50 minutes to take it okay if they said you can get up as soon as you are finished there's a whole group of kids that will go through and mark c on everything and then leave
0: if it's multiple choice sure but i mean i'm talking about like english exams where you've got to write like essays and stuff well and i don't know (laughs) the answer and also like as well like okay let's suppose it is multiple choice or it's Let's say mathematics, because that would be like a, mi- a mixture of all, all of the above, right? Some kids are just really clever. They just figure stuff out quickly. And now you're just sitting there and you're like, what do I do? I agree with your point, though. I think that... And I never had an issue with, with them kind of being like, oh, you should check your test a few times. I'm like, "That sounds sensible to me. I will do that. But once you've checked it like twice, <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm pretty happy with these answers i there's nothing's coming to me i'm not looking at it and going oh no actually you know it's it's yeah it's clear so please can i leave <laughs> i'm not it's the right way to do that i'm just telling you that's kind of why they do it that way yeah no I'm not, I'm not taking you to task all. You know, i was just curious <laughs> it's your fault you're
1: going no. sacrifice, sacrifice your boredom then allow the kid who just wants to do nothing and put whatever he wants and then get out the door i that would be my guess if you talk to the people who are in charge.
0: So you, you look kind of like theorizing that maybe, like, in that time, they might have an epiphany and think, you know what, maybe I should give it a actual go. <laughs> well,
1: but there are lots of kids who will do the very least they can yeah. to get through. Okay. So if you raise the bar of what you have to do, they'll probably do a little better than if they would just go out the door. I, I don't – I mean – I'm not a big fan of tests in general. I don't think they, you know, they're a decent snapshot in time, but like everything else, if you caught me at 7.30 this morning, I wouldn't
0: look like this. So I agree. I I mean, I think the issue I've always had with exams is that it's, I don't think it's truly testing your knowledge. It's more testing your ability for recall. And as you say, like every student's different. Some of us are morning people. Some of us are evening people. I always agree. I mean, I remember when I was at school, I would generally favor the exams that were in the morning. It made more sense to do it first thing, then wait all day, get tired, and then have to do an exam at like 3 p.m. That was pretty brutal. Um, but at the same time, a test is a test. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it is what it is. What do, we, do you know, that's something interesting. Nighttime tests. Maybe that's something they're into. into um, I don't
1: know. They do know... They- there are other professions that do that. You know, adults do that. So sure, and there are probably just as many kids that are night people as there are morning people. So you know.
0: well, I, I mean, that's another way to look at it as well. Is that like sleeping patterns are different? I mean, t- teenagers. I know it's kind of a joke at this point, but it's it's a good it's a good point still. Teenagers tend to sleep for longer. Their bodies need that in order to to grow, regenerate, etc. And it's it's always very tough. For younger people to get up in the morning i remember getting up in the morning at like 6 a.m 5 a.m i i couldn't think of anything worse and you know years later i would do work that involved me getting up at that time and i never felt as terrible as i did when i was at school like there's just no comparison and i don't know what that was um i also don't know how i did it without coffee it still blows my mind to this day uh, but i didn't something to that i think it was school maybe started a little later it might help a little bit i don't know um, I,
1: I for 23 years my wife and i were up every morning at 5 30 for work okay um i don't now i am never unless i'm catching a plane or doing something else that i have to be somewhere i'm never up before 8 30 ever
0: mm.
1: my body just wakes up between eight and i wake up when i get up and then
0: i've I've noticed this as well like i'm self-employed and i find it fascinating that my body just wakes me up at 8 a.m all the time i mean if if i go to bed a bit later okay nine maybe 10 but i'd see i consider that like a real lion but uh, yeah 8 a.m i don't even need to set the alarm anymore it's amazing Um, I want to talk more about your ethos as a teacher because I think this, obviously we've spoken more about like your approach and stuff, but I just kind of want to learn more about your overall experiences. What would you say was the most challenging moment of your career as a teacher?
1: Interesting question.
0: Um,
1: I remember very vividly as a very young teacher, Three years' experience, so I would have been in my middle twenties. <clears throat> I was teaching in what we called at that point a joint vocational school. We now we now call career centers, and how that works in Ohio is that um, a county will have the kids from a, a different school districts send to a central location to 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 study trades. Essentially, I mean. It's far more sophisticated than that and lots of more options, but I'm just I'm oversimplifying. But in those days it was basically trade and stuff. Um what happened when that entity was created in the it started in the middle 70s and here. Um school districts sent the kids they didn't want anymore over there. So uh, you know, there were you no. Know, there were lots of kids that went there because they wanted to learn how to be a bricklayer or a carpenter or an auto mechanic or whatever. But we also had more than my, more than the shirt. And I was teaching English at the time to those kids. So they came over and they spent almost a half, not quite, a little less than half of their day in academics of, of um, social studies, English and math, and the other half in whatever trades they were involved in. And, and I taught the English part. Um, 45 minute periods, I think. It's testing my memory here. One of the classes that I had in my second year, I think it was second year, small class, 12 students, all male. I didn't know this until about the third or fourth, third week into the class, maybe. Every student, now these are all juniors in high school. So for us, that's, 17, 16, 17. All the kids have already been in jail or prison before they were in my class. Wow. I didn't know any of that before I had them all. And now, these weren't, I don't want to give, they, they, they weren't hardened criminals, but these were all kids that had strayed into the law and generally was fighting and there were guns, you know. Um, how, how I learned about that. I'm kind of naive, you know, I'm just, um, there's a kid missing and when there's 12, it's pretty obvious who's not here. And I'm going, like, where is this kid? Well, he just got arrested. I said, what do you mean he got arrested? He tried to rob somebody. This is a really tiny kid. I mean, we were talking about a kid that was maybe 4'10", really small. I said, you know, I'm making a joke. I said, what did you do, put a gun in somebody's belly button? And they said, yeah, that's about what, they, what he did. He tried to rob somebody with a gun. So, And then later on, I found out that they started joking and going, oh, I was, I've been in the big house. I mean, you know, all these kind of stuff. So I'm faced with these kids who've, you know, pretty shitty life already. Some of their own making, some not. And very cynical. And I'm trying to figure out, well, like how in the world do I possibly get them to care about what they might learn in English class? Um that was a that 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 term however long that term lasted it was a quarter of a semester i don't remember was one of the most challenging that i'd had i think in my career
0: how I did ended you up, how did you do it i mean well i
1: ended up kind of tossing out what my what i had originally planned to do for that and i ended up creating a different kind of curriculum that um was all um experience based so like I I had them plan a trip that they would like to go on and they had to do everything about the trip research. Well, you know, this is before the internet. So they had to do the reading and find out where they'd like to go. They had to figure out how much it was going to cost to get there and, you know, how long would it take to drive? So I was trying to get them reading, reading in the sense of research of real practical stuff. And and it worked with some of them and it worked with all of them, but it worked with, you know, um, I had two, I went and got, you might not, uh, we have a thing called AAA here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and in those days, you, this, these don't exist anymore because of the internet, because they have all stuff. But in those days they had tour books of every, every state. So I'd get tour and I would go bring tour books in, and maps and stuff. And so they would have to go through and read and figure out where I, uh, okay. You know, I'd give them money. Okay. So you've got this much money to plan your, plan your vacation. You're taking your girlfriend. Okay. Where are you going to stay? find your hotel so and I don't know that they you know that they come out knowing a whole lot more English they came out knowing a little more about why it was important to be able to do those things
0: what's fascinating as well about your approach there is that it's based in realism real life application it's one of the frustrating things I've always had with school and I think many people I've spoken to online about it have felt the same way especially in the UK as well that Often school, it'll give you the basics, English, your maths, these kind of things, but it won't teach you like how to pay your taxes, how to cook, clean, uh, budget properly, look after yourself, plan a trip, (laughs) you know, like these important things. Okay, you mentioned like planning with a partner. Okay, so considering a budget that accommodates them and, and their needs and et cetera, like it it just baffles me that these things are not covered in school sometimes you hear about it certain places might do that maybe but I, like i remember doing like food tech and and dt at school and the dt was useful and it was it was the lessons were done well the food education was awful we had a very old fashioned teacher but she was just impatient as anything and i would learned nothing like i just it was awful
1: what does dt stand for
0: uh design technology so yeah five using files and and like all that horrible stuff that smells with the goggles and stuff but it was it was done well like considering the fact that we were using heavy machinery and dangerous tools i never remember anyone getting injured or anything so i think we did pretty well but with food tech it was yeah, awful, and I never had, I never learned how to cook until I was like 21 and I was at uni, <laughs> so it was bad.
1: Now, and we don't, Here's this is an interesting story. In my in my time in, in education, my time in education began in the 70s, went all the way through la- the last um, decade. Um, early on, students in our high school could choose to take classes that we would generally call home ec. Hmm. <clears throat> was really about how do you make a home? So on the one end, there were things like sewing, which they really don't do anymore. But they did things like balancing the budget. There were always cooking classes. There, those kind. Of but here's the ironic thing: that as in, uh, in the last twenty years, those courses have all been pushed out because
0: Makes no sense
1: more time for kids in math or science or. I don't know. There's more time in English. I think it's mostly math and science that have been increased. You know. Now, I, there, are, I can see the arguments on both sides, but I'm with you. Kids need that kind of practical stuff, especially because a lot of kids don't get that at home. You
0: know. Right. Exactly what, what I was going to say. Time. Yeah. Like you have to consider the fact that some kids come from a broken home, or that some kids' parents don't care. You know, it's brutal, but this is the reality you have to face. And th- I mean, this is another thing as well. I've always been very um heavy on teachers and I'll I'll admit that. Like I I sometimes I get frustrated because I look back at my experiences and I think that you know, if if some of those key teachers had just cared and just recognized that I, a kid, needed to be pushed, you know, I forget the rudeness. You're gonna get rudeness of every kid, right? But I needed, I desperately needed a teacher to turn around to me and be like, you can do this. I believe in you. Like, I know it sounds cliche, but like, I desperately needed that. And, you know, funnily enough, the teachers that got it and understood it were the ones that were parents. The ones that didn't get it were the ones that just, I don't know why they were teachers. I'll never forget my high school German teacher. So, hey, Robert Shaw, if you're listening, this is it you. (laughs) He divided the class into <laughs> so everyone to the far left were students that were gonna get a stars to B. now he never said this I could just tell by like you know I was not a stupid kid I recognized that you yeah, okay a star students are over there kids in the middle are like your B's C's something like that all of us kids on the far right were all failing and we all looked at each other and we're like okay right so I put my hand up and I was like why have you? Why are you spending all your time with the students who are on track to get an A-star? Why don't you spend some time with us? And his exact response was, well, you've not bothered to put any effort in. That's on you. And I was like, no, that's on you. You're the teacher. You've failed to teach me properly. That's on you. And this is a teacher that would turn around to me and say things like, oh, Christian, I hear that you make tremendous effort in business class and English class. Pity you don't make the effort in my class. And it's like, I do, but like every time I try to ask questions you berate me i remember this in maths class master i put my hand up hey i'm sorry i don't understand why don't you understand i've explained this to you i don't know how many times everyone else gets it you know you see where this is going <laughs> and and that's the thing it creates complexes it creates trauma you can hear me talking about it that obviously years later as an adult male i've reconciled with it i'm fine but i remember how that felt You know, like when I do live streams sometimes and I get younger people coming in and I recount these stories, they say the same stories. They're like, oh, yeah, my teacher's like that. And it's like, I'll say this. I think if you're going to get into education, no one's expecting you to be the world's best teacher. You don't even have to be a master of your subject, but you do have to care and show that you're committed to trying to push the kids Now, granted, not every kid is going to be switched on and, like, receptive. I understand that. You're not a miracle worker. But you can show that you care. You can, you know, for instance, not turn up hungover. You can not turn up and complain about your failing marriage. These are all things that happen, by the way. Uh, You cannot, you you know, just... That's, and, you, and like, if nothing else we're human beings we can sense things I could sense the difference between a teacher that cared and a teacher that didn't yeah. I will always shout out my business teacher because I think this is an important place to talk about this my high school business teacher shout out to Miss Sonelli, I was failing her subject um, I would have been it was at the beginning of the subject so v- very early on but I was failing uh, the department had lost my work. So it wasn't all my fault. They'd lost an entire, like it was a coursework based style subject. I must've done at least 10 to 15 pieces of work. They lost all of it. I was gutted. There was personal stuff going on, et cetera, et cetera. She was taking over. So another teacher had gone. She came in. She's the head of this department now. Okay. She, she sat down with me. And I I'll never forget this. She sat down behind me and we were looking at the computer screen. And she said, What you well, what do you want to do? What do you want to achieve with this? And I took that badly. I thought, like, I that kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I was thinking, Well, you would know that you've lost all my work. You know I'm failing. So I kind of sarcastically turned around and went, I want to ace the course, because I just knew it wasn't possible. And she just went quiet. She didn't say anything. And then she, about a minute later, goes, well, you're going to have to work very hard then, aren't you? And I was like, right. And then she said, but if you work hard, I'll help you get there. And then I was like, hold on. (laughs) It was a bit like, like a movie moment. I was like, so you're saying there's a chance? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, I can ace the course. And she was like, yes. I was like, all right. And, they, and she was true to her word. She worked with me, and I became one of her top students. I aced the course. I took this, the higher-level version of it, aced it again. I was one of her probably the style people, to be honest. And it all came from her showing that she cared, believing in me, and saying, yeah, you can do it. How old were
1: you at the time? What, what, where were you age-wise? 14?
0: Something like that, yeah. Which
1: is a critical... That's a very critical age that's for, for us that's eighth grade to freshman year in high school depending mm-hmm. and, and and like you I I preach this to my teachers all the time about they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care so now I I, I was very fortunate I work with lots of really great teachers who cared and uh, I, I used to um I I in my experience in both administrative and teaching I taught in all kinds of of circumstances I taught in schools that you know, we're very affluent. I taught in schools that were very rural and very basic. I taught in schools that lots of the kids were poor. And the where I finished my career, I was a, a school that had a lot of uh, uh, poor kids. It was multiracial, and I used to preach to my kids, to my teachers. I said, "Now you understand that for a third or half of your kids, you will make the difference as to whether they're going to end up." in prison or on welfare, or as an actual positive citizen in the world. I said, they come from crappy situations, none of which is their control. This is the only thing you guys. I said, you can't control all that. You can't control my own. You can only control what happens in these, in the whatever time you have with these kids. I said, but you can make a difference. And I had, I'm really proud to say, I had a lot of teachers who really were able to turn kids on, Just. And they really, the best of them liked no, that's not really true. they they excelled with working the kids who needed the most. I'm not saying that they really liked the troubled kids. It's, nobody really likes, you know, oh gosh, let's bring this kid home. but they they were they were at their best when the kids were were at their greatest need. And I had quite a few of teachers who were in this last district, which was called Xenia who who answered that bell really well now i had some just like you described too and i called them on the carpet on many occasions you know but more most most of the teachers i work with were of the kids don't know how much don't don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and most of the kids were all taken care of there
0: what would you say was your most memorable experience as a teacher
1: That's another tough question. Well, you know I taught um, I taught for eleven years before I became an administrator. and in that eleven years, i taught I taught university. Uh, I taught high school and I taught middle school. those it was great. Um, I started my teaching career in a very unusual <clears throat> in a very positive way, but a very unusual place. Um, I started at a place called Russia, Russia, Ohio. A very small school district. Um, the entire district, from kindergarten to twelfth grade, only had five hundred kids. I taught every kid in high school. Every kid.
0: Wow. And, and
1: I taught every kid at least twice. So, as a junior, and then as a senior, and then afterward, and and then I had some like speech classes and stuff. So I thought some of them three times, four times. Um, it, that and that was and I, that how I started my career. It was a very very growing experience. Um, The classes were very small. So I I would have classes of 8, 12, 16, a few classes in the 20s, but not very many. But the difference was I had to work my tail off because I don't know how much you know about this, but teachers generally teach maybe five or six what we call periods, sections, whatever. Uh, I taught eight there. Uh, So I was constantly... I was constantly preparing all the time. I spent eight hours a day out of school trying to get ready for the next day because I am a new teacher and I know that much. And because I had this, and it was a wonderful growing experience. I don't know if that's my most memorable part, but I, but but it was it. This district was really interesting. It's a very rural district. It was actually the very first district in the state to have 100% of the kids pass the state test. The, the kids aren't particularly smart, but the parents make sure they're there. And the kids were very, um, they were not at all work averse. They were used to working out of school. So even though they weren't very academically oriented, they, they didn't think school was that important. They would generally do the work really well. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of discipline issues. So I focused mainly on the craft. How do you make the lessons interesting? How do you get the kids involved? How can you come up with a way so that kids who really couldn't care less about reading this novel or a short story or whatever it is you're reading can find something interesting in the process? That was a very rewarding part of my career, and it was a great way to start, to be honest.
0: What would you say are the biggest life lessons you've learned from teaching?
1: The biggest life lessons, you know, I guess uh, teaching made me be aware of I I was raised by um, in a very sheltered environment. Um, um, although my mom and dad were divorced when I was in the eighth grade, my mom cared immensely about me, and we had a very supportive home. I have six brothers. Well, one of them has passed. I have so I have uh, nice. five, and uh, we were very supportive. So I, I was used to getting not only the essentials like food and and. And a place to sleep and all that kind of stuff, um, but I was used to getting love and support and expectation. You you will do this. So what I the biggest thing when I first started teaching was I'm, you know, I come into contact of all these kids that come from backgrounds that are so foreign to me. I had no idea what you know, what do you mean? Uh, your dad's never showing up. What, you know, uh, what do you mean your mom's out every night? You know, I, those kinds of things were very, very, very. Uh, eye-opening experiences for me. I didn't know that the rest of the world lived that way, so it took several years to kind of go. Holy cra-, You know, going back to the class I was talking about about the twelve boys, the twelve guys that were all and had all been in jail or in prison. You know, as I listened to their life stories, I'm going, "Oh my god!" No wonder they are where they are. Some of them, some of them got in there in themselves They're just their own fault. But so I, I, part of what I learned most was, you know. Um, even though kids are kind of a pain in the ass, sometimes they're usually doing what they can when they come to you. And and I learned as much as I hate to admit this, most parents are doing the best that they can. Yep. They don't know any better. Sometimes they just don't know any better. They're screwing up worldly, but it's because they don't know any better than what they're doing. Um, you know, um, so learn and, and and kids come with really terrible situations and the parents are doing a terrible job, but you kind of go, well, this you know the, the thing of well the parents just don't care. Well there are a few parents that don't care, but that's not true for most parents. They do care. They just don't they're oh, they're they're over their head. They're, I was watching a I think this was just I was watching a show where they were talking about parenting and you know, I, I, I'm not any good at it. And, and, the, and the gal said, nobody's any good at it. We're all learning as we go along. That's just, nobody's really kind of, oh, I'm great at this stuff. Um, that was a, you know, coming from my very Catholic, very, very limited, even when I was going through school, most of the kids were like me. So I didn't really have that great, you know, that diverse of experience to learn from. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest lessons I took out of uh, learning and meeting and interacting with kids from all over, from all kinds of backgrounds. Uh, 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 what they somebody said: it, "Through these halls walk national merit scholars and gang members," you know, when, and our job is to take care of all of them, not just not just the easy ones, not just the ones that are going to go on to win accolades. But and I used to tell my teachers that you know there's a Bunch of kids that would learn whether you show up or not. You're not here for them. You're here for the kids that uh, that they depend on you. It, you're everything they've got. It, you, they pull you out. They got zero. So you figure out which how you're going to deal with those
0: kids today. Thank you so much for sharing. A couple of final questions for you, unrelated to today's topic. What's the biggest mistake you've made? That you learned a valuable life lesson from. Wow,
1: it's the biggest mistake I've made. I've learned a lot of valuable life lessons from screw ups. That's for sure. Um, in my career, you know, I I can point to a number of times where I screwed up royally. Um, I never really lost my temper in the sense of, although there's more than one occasion that I wanted to. There's no no question about where a kid really deserved it. So, but um, I don't know. Uh, What's grew up?
0: Doesn't have to be in teaching either. I mean, it's when I ask this question, it's it's kind of more aimed at like. Something maybe where, where you made a mistake and it was like, okay, instant like, okay, this is what I've learned from this. Yeah, I,
1: I know what you mean. Um, I was, I lost my job twice in my career. Well, three times, one time doesn't really count because I was on a federal grant, but the other times I lost the job because of philosophy. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but um, and I, and if I had to do over again, would I have Handled it exactly the same way, uh, you know. Uh, I always believed in doing what was right, even when it cost me the job, which it which it has, a couple of times. Um, I, would I would I have done the thing again? I probably could have been more diplomatic. Probably that's what I you know. Um, I I've always been the kind to speak truth to power, um, you know. I one of the most difficult things that I had to deal with in my career is I've had to cut jobs on at least three occasions. So I'm part of a team who's trying to decide who's not going to work here next year. You know, one time we had to cut uh, 20 jobs, uh, 18 jobs, something like that and sit around a table and decide who's not worth keeping that's not really true. Which positions are not worth keeping. what it was seldom about the individual involved in them. That's that was a really difficult situation. And that's one of the ones that got me in trouble. Um, I will this was part of what led to my problem is they were trying to decide what positions they were going to cut. And when I looked at the list, the list all had to do with at-risk kids. Wow. And things like AP classes and stuff were being protected, but the other ones were not. And I was pretty vehement that I thought we were kind of looking at this through the wrong end of the spyglass and I was informed that uh, uh, the kids who the kids who went to the AP classes are the parents who voted for the levy for, for for money and the kids on the other end were generally not ones that voted for the money you
0: know there's always but, politics involved isn't there doesn't matter where you go in life always, always politics
1: I was amazed how much politics there are involved in schools. In fact, I used to teach administrators. Um, you know, unless you take care of the politics, nothing else matters. It doesn't make any difference how good you are. If you if if you screw up royally in the politics,
0: they'll run you over. That's what it comes down to. What's the best advice you've ever received?
1: The best advice, probably. Um, was when I lost my first job. So uh, I'm at this point. I'm I'm a I'm a professor at the university. Really liked that job. Thought I was going to do that the rest of my life. I did not know this, but they hired me on federal money, which he, in and here, so you get a grant and it's it's available for so many years. And at the end of the year, it runs out. So it it. Me keeping or not keeping job had nothing to do with how good I was doing. The money was there, the money's not, you know. And I'm at that point I have no job. I have three children, the oldest of which is third grade, I think, fourth grade, third grade or fourth grade. Um, uh, a wife who is a homemaker, she's not working at this point, she works later, but um and I'm going, oh and I got no job. Um, and I had happened to be at a conference that the school sent me to, and I'm visiting my uncle, who I wasn't even very close to. He happened to live in the city, and we were so anyway. And he said, "Hey, don't worry about it. I've lost my job three or four times. Every time I found out, I got an even better job than when I lost." It was another version of when God closes a door, He opens a window. Sometimes it's hard to get through the window, but you usually can get through the window. Um, That advice proved prophetic because actually uh, I was at the, what turned out to be at the end of my teaching career, at the end of those 11 years I've told you about, and it was the start of my administrative career. So the fact that I had lost that job and was having to force to reevaluate my priorities, Pushed me into what the first administrative job that I had, which was originally called director of curriculum of this school, but eventually was assistant superintendent. So that that's probably the best advice, you know. And, 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 and the other time when I lost my job, it turned out to be exactly true too as well. So I had I was assistant superintendent at one school district, board changed politics. I have been brought on as superintendent to become superintendent when the guy left, the guy leaves. But by that time, the board changes. They decide they want something else. So I'm forced again to find another job. Kids are older now. It's not quite as serious. And I ended up landing at the district that I, the, the Xenia, the one I was telling you about, the one that's multicultural. And it turns out that where I ended up, what what they needed my skills far more than the school that i had left so it really was god opening a a window that needed to be opened and closing a door that needed to be closed i would never have seen that at the time but uh but it was true
0: what's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far Uh,
1: i'm pretty far along in learning life lessons. So I've got more than my share. Um, I, think, I think the one I would wanna share is that um, you shouldn't worry near as much about things as you are. Things that you think are super important and really critical, turn out to be not near as serious as you thought they were. Now there are exceptions to that, of course, you know. Um, medical issues and things like that, 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 that. There's no way to diminish that, but most of the things that I spent all my time worrying about. Now looking back, uh, in the words of some uh, uh, some speaker I heard said, "Don't spend uh, don't spend a dollar on 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 a worry that should cost a, a nickel." So that's probably what I would share. You know, it's, you'll get through it. It's not that. Keep your head down, do the best you can. you know I, the the life lesson is you do the best you can in the situation that you find yourself. you uh, you don't have to do everything perfect, but you do the best you can in the situation that you have and then you go on to whatever the next step is.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Um final question for you. Do you have any upcoming projects or final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I always I always have upcoming upcoming projects. I have a uh, as I
1: mentioned. So I have five published novels. They are the first is a thriller, and the next four are all mysteries. The latest one we talked about earlier, uh, "Cruel Lessons," which is an amateur sleuth mystery about takes place in schools. Um, I have a completely new uh, a novel that's I've just got an, an agent, so it's a while from being able to come out. It's completely different. It's a historical suspense about the only female member of the spy ring that that spied for George Washington during the Revolutionary War. Um, there's a I don't most people don't know about this even in America. So I certainly wouldn't expect you to know this, but there was a ring called the Culpa Ring, which was a group of six men, maybe seven, um, who spied for George Washington. During and one woman who spied for George Washington during the Revolutionary War, in fact, was one of the. They they learned some critical secrets that helped us win the war, that we wouldn't have won if they hadn't been there. Uh, this group was so secret, we Americans did not discover the name of all six of them until 2020, from 1776 to 2020. Um, we have never discovered the name of the only female member of this, the identity of this female, uh, of this spy ring. So I created a fictional character to step into those shoes and to do the actions. So we know what she did. We just don't know who she is. And of course, she's a teacher. So I have her, it's a tutor actually in those days, but she's a tutor in a family that has access to British secrets. And anyway, so I'm very excited about this. It's a whole new venture for me in a new direction. Um, so I, that, I, that's kind of my newest project. Uh, and then I will get back to doing some more mysteries. So always stuff on the burner.
0: It's been an amazing uh, show. Thank you so much for appearing for your time, for your stories and life lessons. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for being on the show been delighted to be here it's a great time with you thank you sir and to all the listeners of the podcast make sure to go check out dr randy overbeck on uh well his books and check them out I'll i'll make sure to leave links in the description as always if you enjoyed the show, make sure to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, share and subscribe. You know the deal. Leave us a comment. Leave us a review. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know who you'd like to see next, what you'd like to hear covered on the show. Let me know if you have any questions. Just let me know. That's the important thing. Let me know. And uh, in addition to that, if you'd like to support me and what I do in terms of just my dream chasing in general. and production of this show make sure to subscribe on patreon patreon.com slash christian reeve gets you access to my other podcast life with christian reeve a monthly show access to the discord community and much much more thank you so much for watching for listening and until next time see you in the next one